Hello, welcome to Center Saint Sister. On Center Saint Sister, we might laugh or cry, we might get angry or motivated, we might grieve or celebrate, and sometimes all of those things can happen in the very same episode. We are a community of spiritual searchers who embrace Jesus's example of making a beeline to the hurting. Whether an episode is spiritual in nature, purely educational, or just for fun, my hope is that you finish the episode feeling hopeful. I hope you hear something today that lets you know you are loved and helps you love one another. Welcome to Center Saint Sister. Hello, Sinners, Saints, and Sisters. It's been a while. The Sullivan household was really busy this summer, and it feels great to be back together again to bring you such an important episode to close out season 10. Dear Alana is a podcast about passion and zeal, sexuality and confusion, scrupulosity, mental illness, self-acceptance, and the price of fitting in. Alana Chin, a church girl, purposeful and eager, longed to please God and live a religious life. As the podcast unfolds in her carefully revealed journals, we are led into her struggles around reconciling her faith and her sexuality. In her quest to become a nun, she is led by trusted mentors and clergy to pursue conversion therapy. Ultimately, tragically, Alana died by suicide at the age of 24 after being hospitalized for depression. The story of Alana Chin is delicately told by Simon Kaifung, and he reveals so much of his own struggle trying to reconcile his sexuality with his faith. The storytelling, the music, the poetry, interviews, Dear Alana is a stunning piece of art. And as good works of art do, Dear Alana is also a conversation starter. It is my hope that everyone listens with open hearts and open minds as complicated relationships are explored between morality and identity, tolerance and celebration, sin and shame, and the love we feel in the way we express it. I've held out speaking publicly on how I feel about the ways some churches have fumbled with their treatment of the LGBTQ plus community. Part of that is out of a deep love for the church. I am loyal. But stories like Alana's, stories like Simon's, make standing idly by and waiting for better answers than the ones we're getting impossible for me. I have to say something. And we have to do better. Not saying so makes me feel complicit. I am not interested in debating or trying to change anyone's belief around the morality or immorality of homosexuality. However, I am wholeheartedly interested in what Jesus would have to say about religious people removing themselves from sin and pointing others down roads that lead to understandings of themselves that is anything more defining than beloved. How can we ever expect the world to know of a God who loves them if it is so difficult to try to find a church who even likes them? This feels like something we can gather around a point of unity, regardless of our perfect agreement, regardless of what we might believe treating people with the Imago Dei dignity that they deserve, it can be a point of unity. And we have to do better. I finished episode eight of Dear Alana two weeks ago. Please, please listen to the podcast. I finished the last episode and I knelt right where I was in my kitchen when the last song started and I begged God for a better way. I don't have any answers, except begging that you please listen to what Simon K. Fung has created 
with Dear Alana Chin. I am so, so proud to introduce you. Simon, you are my new favorite artist. (laughs) Um, Oh my God. Actually, I can't decide if it's you or Alana. (laughs) Um, But you are such a master storyteller. You are thorough. You are concise. You're gentle. You're humble. You're reverent. Um, And the way that you write and ponder and summarize, you have this commitment to connection. You are connected to your subject, and then you are connected to your audience, and then you connect your audience to your subject. And in doing all of that, you bring people together with just the right words. And it might be um, in something truly awful, like shame or loneliness or or self-hatred, but you bring us all together. And, and when you do, there is something that happens in the midst of your storytelling that you don't even realize. Like we're all kind of leaning in, we're all being drawn in. And then in the middle of it, you you kind of sit back and take it in and realize that somewhere along the way, like all the boundary lines have been erased and we're all just kind of there together. Um, you, me, and her. And I am so, so grateful. I am so, so grateful that you're here. You have a podcast called Dear Alana and it simply will not let me go. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Thank you so, so much for having me and and what what incredibly powerful and kind words i'm so glad you're you're uh listening and 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 feeling that way it you know you never know when you write or release something how it's going to be received and sure. um and and you know what you de- you're, what you're describing that sense of like being together on mm. this on this story is exactly what i was hoping yeah people would would find themselves in so thank you yeah love is always a risk and your love yeah. is very very clear um, so before we get started, I, before we dive in, I like to ask guests to introduce themselves to our listeners, to our audience by telling us a little bit about who and what you love. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, well, um, my name is Simon and I, um, I guess up until a year ago had been living in San Francisco in the Bay area and, um, moved to Denver to, to work on this project and kind of upend my life. Um, but I would say what I'm really loving right now is this kind of period in my life where I don't really have a plan. Um, I, I knew I needed to tell the story and, mm. um, I knew I wanted to, to devote, you know, to do devote my life to it, to tell it well. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of torpedoed in some ways, uh, my life as I knew it, you know, geographically, my work, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, working and employed. I'm still, I'm, I basically just need to sleep right now. So, so I'd say like, I, I'm kind of in this period of, of, uh, of newness, uh, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm really looking forward to spending time with my family, um, here in Toronto and, um, yeah, just just uh, I'd say I'm just enjoying this period of of newness. Yeah, what an adventure! If you don't mind, do you also mind introducing us to Alana as best you can, and why you decided to tell her story with the commitment that you did? Absolutely. Um, so, 
the the podcast Dear Alana is centered around this young woman named Alana Chen, who at the age of 24 passed away uh, by suicide. And her life was one that maybe a lot of your listeners will be familiar with. She was a she was a church girl. She was someone who found a lot of her belonging and identity from a her, from a really young age as a young teenager in in the Catholic Church. Uh, she was this vibrant top student who was athletic and was sort of you know super smart known around town for her commitment to service she loved um serving the homeless under the bridge in boulder where she was from in in, in colorado and she really just was this active all all very well-rounded kid uh, she comes from a family that's mixed race um her, her father's chinese and her mother's italian and puerto rican and so she had this really interesting upbringing in the suburbs of, of of Colorado with three other siblings, and and yeah, and I'd say her life in many ways was quite ordinary and resembled a lot of people, uh, a lot of people's. But she did, you know, in the course of her early teenage years, become really infatuated is probably the best word, or really convicted and passionate about her faith um, through her local parish through some of her priests and mentors. And one of the unique things about her story is that she had this dream of becoming a nun. Um, at the age of 14, she was introduced to nuns and their way of life and writes a lot about this in her journals, which is one of the incredible artifacts that she left behind. She left behind 20 journals um, in her bedroom, which her her parents later found, but um, that that is kind of the basis of, in a way, the setting of the story that um, I go into in Dear Alana. Yeah. So she wrote like she knew how important her voice was going to be. And I can't remember who said that in the show, if it was a friend mm. um, or a sister, but, but someone said that and she did, she wrote and she wrote and she wrote. And there's this paragraph in one of her journals, which her dear, dear mother was so generous enough to let you um, read. And there was this paragraph that said something along the lines of that. It was really hard to write for just herself. And mm. in that sentence, you found some permission um, to tell her story with the carefulness and thoughtfulness um, that you did um, so intricately um, mm. through the, these these journals. And so, um, when I look at the two of you, you are such similar artists, if I may say so. And it is my sincere belief, Simon. Excuse me, that she handpicked you. Um, to do this, to do this project. And I know that she is beaming with pride at the beautiful product um, that you have created. And I hope that you are beaming too. How do you feel? How do you feel about the finished product? I, I would say I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of it. I mean, it was probably the hardest thing that I'd ever tried to do. And, and for many reasons, as, as people who begin to listen, it will probably be able to guess um obviously the subject matter is is sensitive and 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 heavy and deep and rich and i mean it's it's and at the same time there was this tremendous sense of responsibility that i felt towards mm -hmm. 
telling a truthful story and honoring her legacy um, while balancing the the real work that needed to be done journalistically, even though I'm not a journalist, right, around mm. getting to the bottom of um, to the extent that we can know what was going on in her life. And um, as you'd mentioned, there were so many uh, so many details about her life. She left these 20 journals, over 1,200 pages, and she there's so much that had to go into picking what to what yeah. to share right you had limited there's limited amount of time in a in a podcast even if it's eight eight episodes to really get into her life and so really just navigating some of those ethical dilemmas of like how do i what would be something that someone who may not actually who's not here to give us permission to yeah. you know uh to share her her work her writing which in many ways wasn't meant for public consumption to begin with how do we balance how do we how do yeah how do how do i find those elements that are essential to the story how do i respect what should be sensed you know what's actually really sensitive and private but as you mentioned one of the things that gave me um i would say a little bit of consolation was reading in her own words several times where she writes about how she longs to be seen. She hopes mm. someday someone will find some of this work, um, some of this writing. And and that that kind of tension between her sharing really private details alongside her desire, expressed desire to be to be seen and to be known through her words was something that that, you know, helped me navigate some of those thorny, thorny challenges. Yeah. Um but I would say, like that—that that was that was the work going into making this, and and then on top of that, I, I, there there was the personal dilemma of deciding how much of my own story to share mm -hmm. in this in the, in making this. My my original intention was not to be in in it, right? It mm -hmm. was really for me to just be the sort of detached storyteller. But the more I um, the more I was writing and editing this, and the more feedback I was getting along the way, it became clear that there were questions around who is Simon? Like, why do we trust him? Mm, why yeah. should we listen to him? And um, and so that gave me gave me some nudges into, into sharing my own into sharing my own story, which I do get into in the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and and yeah, to your first point about just how synchronous in many ways or how how many parallels there were in her story alongside mine there are there are countless moments like that where i just felt like okay i this isn't just a passion project you know this is something mm -hmm. that feels guided yeah yeah well i i mean i absolutely fell in love with the, the both of you I so longed, there were these moments where I so longed to just jump back in time with mm. you and be like your fierce um, tomboy best friend that's <laughs> probably even a kind of mean, you know, like on that playground, like I wanted to be there with you so badly. Um, but you share, you know, your fervor, your your tenacity. Um, I love the friendship of God that you found so early in life because of loneliness. Um, I fell in love with your cousin. I fell in love with your precious dad um <laughs> i and then alana and her 
her fierce mom, um, mm. her fierce best friend, the scrapbook they shared between them, um, how she signed her letters to God, love, love you girl. I mean, just, there were so many, um, things about her, so many things that you let us see her fashion projects, her po the music that she made. Oh I wept. Gosh. I wept and um, I'm just enamored with you both. And it's, it's through this, this clarity of you choosing which details to share that we get to know you both so well. Um, so many times, Simon, in the recording of this project, you actually say the sentence, Alana is articulating something right now that I have never been able to put words to, you know, mm. that happened a, a couple of times. And, and so her story, I, I think, I don't, I think, and maybe it's a question, made you mm -hmm. look at your story with some fresh eyes. Was the making of this therapeutic at all? Absolutely. I, I think one of the things that I realized is often we're a lot more empathetic and able to see more clearly things that happen outside of us to other people, right? To, to the people around yeah. us, to our friends, to our family, to our loved ones, than we are when they're happening to us. Yeah. And then extend kindness even. Yeah, exactly. To extend kindness, compassion, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of sympathy. We're, we're often so hard on ourselves. And, and I think that's, that's kind of where I was at when I began learning about Alana's story and digging deeper. It was, I felt in many ways that I had moved on from a lot of these chapters in my life and that I had sort of, quote unquote, you know, resolved them or felt like I had them all figured out. But in reading Alana's words, in seeing her wrestle with questions, in her juxtaposing ideas that she was receiving that felt confusing to her, mm -hmm. I I got kind of got permission to feel that way, right? I got yeah. permission to to start to revisit some of my own, you know, some of those those similar experiences and to look at them with new eyes. And by yeah, seeing what was happening to her, seeing how how on the outside she was one way and on the inside she felt this other way, mm -hmm. I, I could totally relate. And, and I think that began a process of yeah, revisiting my own past. Yeah. Yeah. And then wanting to nurture that in her and letting that be an indicator that it needs nurturing in you. That's yep. just, I can't, I can't imagine. So every single person is hurting in one way or another. And my mm. sincere hope, um, is that I would be able to comfortably and confidently invite anyone, everyone, without even knowing the journey that they're on or the specific hurt that they're carrying, but that I would be able to confidently invite them to my church mm -hmm. and without reservation know that they would be bid welcome that they would feel comfortable there um, and that they would walk in and that they would know that they are in good company with fellow broken people and that we could all sit together there in our simultaneous imperfection and trust in the Lord. And I don't even think that's like a controversial desire. I think that that's probably pretty universal that any Christian, if especially if you're modeling your lives after Jesus Christ, would say, yes, that is my hope, that everyone would feel comfortable in my church. I mean, clergy, everyone would raise their hands all in favor. Yes. And mm -hmm. yet um, we shoot and we miss. 
Um, mm-hmm. We miss we miss the mark. And I'm not certain that we are missing that mark any more widely than we are with the LGBTQ plus community. And there are so many reasons for that. Um, they're, they're complex, they're nuanced. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if it might be an obvious, maybe not easy, but obvious place to start in, um, in talking about language, our language around this, our words matter because words help us um, understand ourselves and each other. And I thought that it was really interesting in, in the storytelling that Alana really embraces this title of same-sex attracted over, say, the word gay or, or homosexual, because in doing so, there was something for her um, that might have described her, but didn't necessarily define her. So it's mm-hmm. like, I'm experiencing these, this thing versus I am this thing. And you say something kind of um, funny in the podcast. It's like maybe having, I don't know what you say exactly, but it's like having alopecia or indigestion. It's like one might also have same sex attraction. So, so what are your latest thoughts, Simon, on the language that we're using? And how do you think that language influences how we feel about homosexuality? Yeah. So I think like Alana, I really embraced a lot of the the language that the church gave me as a young person around I you know putting words to my experience of of you know sort of literally same sex attraction, right? Like around w- being physically, emotionally, romantically interested in members of the same sex. And and um I think what's interesting is like yeah, our language is imperfect and depending on where we are, we we do often code switch, right? We often try to use the language to signal that we're in with a particular group, that we mm. believe certain mm-hmm. um, assumptions about, about some of those words. Uh, and so I think about, for example, the, the heated language that the passionate language that people use around being pro-life versus anti-abortion, right? Like often which word you choose signals a lot more than just your political position on a particular topic. Um, And so I think that the word same-sex attraction versus, for example, the word gay or homosexual is similar in that for Catholics, for many Catholics, the the word same-sex attraction is intentionally used in order to try to distance a person from identifying with that condition so that it feels a lot more like an attribute of them like I say in the podcast, like having psoriasis, right? Like, oh, I have, I'm someone who struggles with psoriasis. I'm someone who struggles with same-sex attraction versus something that's much more defining, like I'm American or I'm, you know, Chinese. Like there's so many other, uh, you know, that takes on sort of a more identifiable or deeper identity marker um, by using, by using a word like gay or homosexual. So what I'm, what I, I, I'm sort of talking out loud on this. I, I do think also that what's interesting about these terms is, for me at least, the reason why I chose initially to identify the word same-sex attracted was because I didn't see myself as those other people who were gay, which in my mind meant they were politically active. They were these sorts of like gay rights activists who were trying to change all the laws, who were mm-hmm. dancing in the pride parade. Like I didn't, that wasn't my experience of my um, budding attractions and feelings. I didn't feel like that was my community or culture. Mm-hmm. And 
I've, I've since talking to other folks in the year since my adolescence, I am also learning that this is a country specific phenomenon where, for example, outside of the United States, terms like LGBTQ feel very political. They feel very strident. And whereas maybe here in the US, we feel a little bit more neutral about those words generally. Like they're just like, oh, they're Asian American, they're LGBTQ, they're African American. You know, it's sort of another another example of that here in the US. Whereas outside of the US, it feels a little bit more like, oh, you you are a you are a political lobbyist, right? So 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 I think like that as a background can really help us understand why people choose to identify with the, the words that they use. Yeah. And and I'm I'm all for people finding the word that fits them. For me at least, what I have come to realize, especially in making Dear Alana, was one of the big reasons why I chose not to use the word gay or homosexual growing up was because of the shame that I felt deep down around this 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 experience that I was having, right? This this mm-hmm. aspect of me. And I think that oftentimes we in the church overlook the hidden relationship that people may have to some of these words and and try to um say things like well don't use this word because it doesn't define you when in fact what they're really saying is or the way it's interpreted is often I should not use this word because this part of me is so shameful and so dark and so damaging and and you know it reflects such a damagedness in my own life that that I need to distance myself from this part of me and I need to um actively feel you know actively step away from any any implication of this being an aspect of my identity and and i think that's that's one of the tragedies that often goes overlooked when we are dealing with this population of folks is that we use words without knowing the ways in which they're received without really understanding the the layers underneath that word and why this word can actually perpetuate a shame that a person may still have about their identity. And I think that's really where the work needs to be done because yeah. we, yeah, we can, we can sort of like brush this topic aside and say, well, here's our pastoral approach. Here's the language we should be using when in fact we're not really addressing the root that people are really struggling with. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's a neutrality, I guess, to the, to the, there's the attractiveness of, of the neutrality of same sex attracted. And I, you know, I suppose it feels um, like we've come a long way because it used to be a disease, right? I mean, as as late as 1987, I think it was in, in the DSM as a disease. And so when you have, when that's the public consciousness around this concept, this idea, this, this attraction of, of course you're fearful of it. If it's a disease, yeah. of course you want to stay away from it. If it's a disease, of course you want to cure it if right. it's a disease. Um, and, and then if it's something that you have, you know, yeah. if this attraction, if the same sex attraction, if it's only something that you have, then it's probably something that you can unhave, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I would add like a few things. One is like on the language friend, and you may not want to use this 
part of the interview, but I did speak with I did speak with the clinician researcher who coined the term conversion therapy. And one of the things that he told me about was how much he was struggling with finding a word to describe some of these treatments. And we'll get into that later, but as a, mm-hmm. as a parenthesis. Mm-hmm. But he, what he noticed was historically the way that a lot of these treatments were described was treatment, quote unquote, treatment of homosexuality, which as you described, puts homosexuality or same-sex attraction in under the category of a disease that needs to be treated, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's so so much subtlety to the way we use language that can frame an experience as a pathology or not. And so he chose a different term to try to, you know, change the the way that this was was framed. Um, but the other other thing I would add is that, like as a young person, hearing hearing the you know studying very closely all of the pastoral direction that Orthodox Catholicism had to offer around folks with struggling with these with these matters i really bought into the message that simon alana this is not a core part of your identity this is this is not something that by using other words like gay and homosexual you are turning this into something that is an essential part of you is it, it describes the entirety of your being mm-hmm. but i I think what's interesting is that if you actually talk to a person who's dealing with these matters, who's same-sex attracted or who's gay, I don't think a lot of them, even those who identify as gay, would see themselves, see this topic or see this experience or condition as something that defines them. And you hear about that when I, when I spoiler alert, share some of that, this with, talk about some of this with my cousin, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't see herself that way, but that's the way that many in the church would paint those in the LGBTQ community. And so there's, I think, a little bit of broken telephone going on or a little bit of projection Mm -hmm. where we're telling people what their experience is when, in fact, they're not actually experiencing that. Because if you think about it, we identify with all sorts of attributes that form parts of who we are. But I don't think anyone would ever believe that, perceive that they're all of who we are, right? Like, for example, I'm... I'm American. I'm Canadian. I'm, I have brown eyes. Like there are attributes, or I'm trying to think of words that describe me. Like I, I am an uncle. I am a brother. These are attributes of me, but they aren't me in in my entirety. And I don't think we would apply that same standard to mm-hmm. any other attribute. But for some reason, when it comes to sexuality and gender, we we like to go to these sorts of extremes. Yeah. Interesting. So identity, the question of identity, it's like this ancient human concern. And certainly as Christians, we're interested in identity. Is identity something that we discover? Is it something that we create? Is it something that we, you know, receive? And so so I think the mm. essence of the question is, is it is attraction? Because you have this unsought experience of attraction. You're not trying to be attracted. That's not what attracted means. It just means that I am attracted. And so how much do our attractions have to do with our identity? I mean, that's that's the question. How much is of what I'm I am attracted to? How much Mm. does that define me? How and how much does that definition determine um my identity? So so how important do you think our attractions are to understanding ourselves? 
That's really interesting. I think I think attraction and especially as it pertains to our sexuality and the way we experience attraction is so messy and complicated. Yeah. Um, and I think that in many ways we are only now beginning to develop more nuanced language mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. that, right? It's not just that, oh, I find this person hot or, oh, I want to have children with this person, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many other, I think we're finding new words to describe what draws us to another person um, or a, a, you know, a, a group of people or um and i think that like as you'd mentioned earlier there is like identity is something that is both given to us it's something that we don't choose um there are attributes of our identity that we are born into right or the family that we're born into genetically how we how we present um and then there are attributes of our identity and and i would add also to to that that first category, like spiritually, right? As, mm-hmm. as babies, we are, we receive our baptism, right? As, yeah. as a, our, our part of our identity. But then there are attributes of our identity that, um, we kind of take on later on in life or that we co-create, that we contribute to. It's sort of that mm-hmm. mixing of both our, our nature as well as our environment, right? Like if I have this inclination to be a writer or a, or a, designer, graphic designer, I may pursue that and that beca- that becomes a part of my identity. You know, the work that I do mm-hmm. and how I choose to express myself in the world becomes a part of me. Um, if I decide to, I don't know, father a child, right? That that paterni- paternity takes on a mm-hmm. concrete part of my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think there's no clear answer there, but I would say that for many people, the experience of like effective romantic sexual attraction is something that's quite stable and mm-hmm. persists and is something that generally is not i would say most of the time is not something chosen it's something that we discover in ourselves as we come of age as we grow mm-hmm. and um for some people it happens earlier in life for some people it happens later in life and i would I guess I would just put it in that first category as something that's a little bit more given. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like the argument becomes, well, my my sexuality, my attractions is me. And mm-hmm. if you reject that, then you reject me. Right. And the church's answer to that is, no, 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 no. We don't reject you. We're just rejecting um, this part of you. Uh-huh. And and that part of you, you can deny. Or that part of you, you can disassociate from. Right. That's a great word. Yes. And so there's, yeah. And so there's the crux. Because I feel like, Simon, that, that Alana was receiving um, two messages at the same time from the same people that were very different. And so, so the first message she was told over and over and over again, um, that her, her attractions did not define her and Mm -hmm. that she didn't have to identify with them. Um, in other words, it was kind of no big deal. Like it, this is just, this is just a thing. And then at the same time by the same people, um, she was also sent to very certain counselors 
She was also um, suggested, you know, very specific retreats, websites, um, explaining all of the things that were making her her feel this way, um, articles demystifying all of it. Essentially, she was told that she would have to be healed of this disorder in order to pursue a religious life or be a wife or, and so, so, so on one hand you have, Hey, this is just a small part. Don't, um, I, I mean, literally, uh, her spiritual, um, director advisors words were don't take yourself so seriously. Right. Okay. So, so that, so that's what's happening over here. Um, but then if you're gonna, if you're gonna work here, if you're gonna be celebrated here, not tolerated, but celebrated, if you're gonna pursue religious life, then these are the things that maybe you should go have figured out. Yeah. That you, that should be healed. That should be healed. Um, and so how in the world do we pastor with tenderness and teach with clarity and seek out the hurting? When there is this huge mixed message coming yeah. from the church over and over and over again, do you have advice for clergy? Do you have advice for people leading? Yeah, I I think you hit the nail on the head that this is a really good example of the state of where we are in, as a church around mm-hmm. like the best advice we can be giving young people and, and people in general on these matters. And it wasn't until I read those, read that kind of uh, juxtaposition in Alana's writing, like literally mm-hmm. in the paragraph where she's like, they said it was no big deal. And then they also said that it was a heavy cross that, you know, left untreated would, would essentially lead me to hell. And so there was this, this both kind of like dismissiveness about the advice alongside really, really heavy existential consequences to like one's eternal soul right so like which is it like this is like a really confusing thing to hold and and i think that what's so interesting is that i used to try to hold that tension too and thought this Mm. this was just one of those like the church likes to use the language of mystery or this sort of dialectical paradox right like oh it's both and i think like I don't think this is one of those examples. I think this is an actual contradiction. Like, I think this is a square yeah. that you really can't circle or circle you can't yeah. square. And, um, and I think it was reading Alana's confusion, excuse me, reading Alana's confusion that really helped me see that more clearly in myself. Um, and like, I understand the intentionality behind why pastoral counsel is the way it is here, where it may not want to encourage young people to, give too much weight to some of their experiences that they believe could either be temporary and passing, right? Or they believe probably from with some outdated uh, understanding and science that, oh, the more you fixate or or investigate or explore, the deeper you'll get entrenched into this and you'll essentially become gay, even if you weren't to begin with. So there's this, I understand that desire to to not fixate on this and to try to dismiss it. Um, but at the same time, as you'd mentioned, there is this heaviness that's associated with going near this topic at all. And so, so yeah, I, I'd say the, for me at least, this is kind of what happens when you start with a perspective of like morality, first of all, 
Uh, and I think the church, when it comes to looking at the phenomenon of homosexuality, begins with natural law as its starting point. Uh, it starts with revelation, but I think many have since realized that any external prohibition around committed, lifelong uh, romantic partnership of people with the, with the same sex is not exactly what was condemned in Leviticus and you know, by St. Paul. And so I think that that argument is starting to to die out. But it, the one that remains is this natural law idea that, well, we need to evaluate this under and understand people who have same-sex attraction or who are gay um, from this perspective of right and wrong, like first and foremost, like that's where we need to start on 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 looking at people with this condition and who are, you know, experiencing this as part of their identity. and. I just think that is kind of input output, like what you what you're going to get if you start there. You're going to mm-hmm. get advice that's centered around behavior, that's centered around you know policing behavior, conforming, you know behavioral conformity, and um, and and I think that's what Alana and I got. It was very much well. We need to steer you away from this. We're going to put you into therapy, and you're going to you know, want to also seek out this kind of therapy on on your own that is going to eliminate this quote unquote objective disorder about you. So I I think that, I I mean, I don't have a a good solution. I, I think so much of what is happening is we are still discovering and learning about what it's like to be, you know, to be gay and what it's like to um to wrestle with this kind of pastoral advice and unfortunately there are real consequences to this right there are real casualties in our in our stumbling and i think that's so much of the tragedy of alana's story um and so for so many people who have many years of their life spent pursuing and following up on and, and actively dutifully doing what the church advises them to do in these matters is that the tragedy is that we miss out on on hearing and walking with and really learning from yes. people who are in the midst of these experiences. Yes. And and that's what happens when you start with morality and moralistic mm-hmm approaches to mm-hmm. catechesis and education. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say sort of like the alternative would be to find other, <laughs> other angles, mm-hmm. right. Other angles of accompaniment mm-hmm. as the Pope describes mm-hmm. other angles of listening. I do really believe that in the church, there are roughly two camps of people. There are those who believe that we've exhausted everything we already need to know about complex matters such as sexuality and relationship. And so all we need to do is essentially follow the quote unquote rules and conform. Mm-hmm. And that's what it means to be a good Catholic. And then there are those who who I think believe that we've really only begun scratching the surface of these topics and that there's so much we don't know. Um, and I think Alana's story invites us into that second category. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, science and religion um, don't always play play nicely. Um I feel like there's yeah. often a theological resistance to um 
scientific assertions. But then there's also a scientific blind eye uh, to mystical experiences of the religious, right? And so I have this yeah. dear friend who doesn't think this is a problem at all. Um, he's like, uh, it's just a natural part of the process. Science and religion marry up perfectly. It's just that science is faster than religion or than theology. Mm. And I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I, I like that. That's interesting. Um, and so... In the, so scientifically, conversion therapies have largely been debunked, and therapists are very much trying to separate themselves from ever having practiced them. Um, you know, for example, yeah. Exodus International has been disbanded. They've admitted that there were false claims. Um, are there new conversion therapies on the horizon? What's new in this field? I, I, or is there? Yeah. Or have we, as a, a, a people, determined that that was malpractice? Yeah, yeah. So I, I go into this into I get into this in, in the podcast, which is some of the history behind conversion therapy and the kinds of uh, theories that really inform conversion therapy. And a lot of it really begins with Freud around his his theories around um, parental. Mm -hmm parental detachment and, and attachment being really formative in, in our adult development. Um, and so, so that, that aside, I think what's interesting is that the new wave of, of practitioners of these, uh, of these approaches have sort of rebranded and have mm -hmm. taken on some, some different language. So instead of uh, focusing on conversion therapy as something prescribed by an outsider whether that's a person, you know, a clergy person or a parent, they focus on patient choice. They focus on the fact that this is chosen by people. And so we need to protect those rights. They focus on rel religious liberty arguments. Um, they talk about how orientation change is no longer a primary outcome, but a secondary outcome. And so the primary outcome being we need to address your underlying childhood traumas. Mm -hmm. And we're just simply doing that. And as a, as a consequence, you may experience orientation change. And then they also often will sort of uh, bob between therapy and ministry. And so there are groups that historically would have put themselves in the category of conversion therapy or ex-gay ministry, but now will say, well, we don't actually practice or endorse conversion therapy because we're not therapists. So so there's there's a constant kind of like shifting of this. But I think what all of it still has in common is this idea that what people are experiencing in their sexuality is pathological path pathological from a like psycho psychological psychological perspective or broken from a spiritual perspective i think those terms are fairly interchangeable um and i think what's also unique about this phenomenon of these kinds of approaches and therapies is that there are like the question around whether or not a person has, is making a free choice and seeking out them is really interesting to me. Like when I began making this project, I always believed that this was my choice. And Alana writes about this as well. Like this was her choice to choose this kind of therapy and to, to seek this kind of counsel. Mm -hmm. No one did it. So I really have no one to blame. Mm -hmm. But in the course of making it and, and speaking with folks and gathering feedback from people who were listening to me talk about my experiences, they were like, they were asking, they were challenging me. They were like, Simon, did you really have a choice? Like if the choice was between changing or going 
facing like existential like moral peril like is that actually a choice like when there's essentially a gun to your head right around what you need to be doing to live a full life and to pursue your vocation and and so i was like oh my goodness like i wonder if there's really actual choice and agency in a lot of folks experience um and but i do want to say one of the reasons i tried to tell the story as accurately as i could in the way i did and really getting into a lot of the theories. A lot of people, I got some feedback from folks saying, well, you're giving too much airtime to these messages. But I wanted to show them for what they were because I do believe that they will always have an air of rationality or reasonableness behind them because what a lot of these psychological theories do is they actually draw from real real life experiences, right? They They were able to reference me being bullied or my relationship right. with my father mm-hmm. and the difference is that they just tied it together into a narrative that that served you know its purpose around trying to explain my homosexuality but mm-hmm. because it's still drawing from a lot of these experiences and mind you me going to my f- uh, first conversion ther- therapist was also my first time in actual therapy right so it's like wow, wow yeah. this is like I'm like hearing from someone who's like listening to me, taking notes, who's actually asking me to talk about my childhood and upbringing. Like that was that was very at some levels therapeutic for me, and I think that's why a lot of people find it compelling and choose to spend years in these programs is because they are getting there is a kernel of truth in some senses in 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 the in the approach, and there right. is some amount right. of like you know addressing of of issues in their lives. Um, but I think what, I, at least in my experience was, and, and also Alana's is that it didn't actually have the intended outcome and it actually, um, perpetuated a lot of deep seated shame. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that. If this is, um, if this question is to, I love boundaries, I love boundaries. So just, yeah. <laughs> just tell me when I'm, when I'm trespassing, if you will, but, um, what are your latest thoughts around your sexuality being tied to, um, some of unresolved attachment issue or some parenting failure or Mm. masculinity deficit or what are your, how do your current beliefs um, about your sexuality affect your former desire to be repaired? Yeah. So as I I share in this show, I I did reach a point where after spending all of my twenties in different kinds of therapy and programs and, and ministries, I hit a wall. I I felt like I wasn't seeing the results that I wanted to see. Sure. I was getting some interesting insight about me and my dad and, you know, having some, some interesting reflections on masculinity and, and how that was, how that was or wasn't developing in me and in, in, in the ways that I wanted. But, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't having the intended result of, of, changing my orientation. And, and I think that's the case for a lot of people. Um, I think, side note, there are people for whom, you know, because of their background in a lot of conservative religious circles where there is a mistrust of outside secular therapists and where what is o- the only thing that's on offer is this kind of reparative or conversion therapy, there are there's a population of people that actually find it helpful in resolving some of these some of these wounds in their lives and for, and for whom, you know, because of their starting point, perhaps they are 
you know, more on the bisexual side of the spectrum, Mm -hmm. you know, are finding some coping strategies on how to be in a mixed orientation marriage or to Mm -hmm. be in that kind of relationship with an opposite sex partner. Um, But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, my experience, Alana's experience. For us, like, we didn't see that change. And I think that that had really a triple, it dealt a triple blow, right? There There was already, like, the first blow was the shame of that we felt around having these attractions and being gay, right? The second blow came when we were told that this was caused by some some trauma in your life or some problem that Alana had with her mother or I had with my father. And so there was a lot of shame around that in my life. Like, oh my God, mm-hmm. I'm so wounded, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, the third blow of shame was this isn't working. I'm not changing. My orientation yeah. isn't shifting. So I must be so darn damaged mm-hmm. and so darn broken that even this isn't working. And um, and I think I saw myself as this very broken, damaged, inferior person for so, so long as, as all of my friends were getting married, as all, you know, as people were moving on with their vocations, pursuing their lives, like I felt stuck and like I had no future. And I think a lot of LGBTQ folks feel that way. And yeah, I would say that like, and I can return to that topic, but, but going back to your earlier question of like, how how i see this I, I think that this was a period in my life where i in some ways had to go through it like i i i wasn't in a place where i was open to outside voices on the subject i was seeking out therapists and priests who were telling me what i wanted to hear who who were telling me that yes this is something that is temporary that you can be quote unquote healed or fixed from and I took it all very seriously. Um, and I, I do think that, um, I do think that there's like a valid, like place for looking at questions around masculinity and femininity Mm -hmm. and childhood trauma and relationships Mm -hmm. with parents. But I do feel like the promise and the tying together of these phenomena into a cohesive origin story narrative that Mm -hmm. explains why you are the way you are is as foolhardy as Mm -hmm. trying to i'm not a big believer in horoscopes maybe some people are but it but essentially is it's more akin to that than it is or you know trying to reduce or explain a person to one aspect of them whether that be their biology or their 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 astrological sign I, th- I think that's it's just sort of a reduction ultimately of a person yeah interesting yeah thank you um i you you say this sentence it's kind of this this gavel dropping moment where you say my quest for change in this mm. area of my life had to end or i would and um you just you you feel the heaviness of that with you um, it, I, I long for deep and constructive mutual engagement of, of science and religious belief so, so that we could come together because I'm just holding out for better answers than the ones we're getting. And mm. I, I really believe that it, I'd like to s- suggest to religious communities that, that science isn't a threat. Um, but instead, instead, it's something to celebrate. It's something to to help inform us. And then I'd like to suggest to the scientific community that you know the religious operate with with a commitment 
um, yes. to truth that like banishes fear, you know? And so um, if we yes. could just come together w- with some respect and some collaboration, I think we could clarify and then calmly get to better progress ar- around all of it. But I, d- I do think it's going to take some cooperation. Um, yeah. Last question before we just promote, promote, promote. Um, speaking of, of boundaries. So <sighs> I am not a mental health professional. And this is, this is just the, this was the core thing for me in listening to dear Alana. And I'm, and I'm not a mental health professional, but I felt yeah. rage. I felt rage about Alana not getting the help that she needed or not, not soon enough. Um, because the truth yeah. is that really it was only clergy that knew the entirety of what she was dealing with. And she was specifically told, do not tell your parents. And so I can't imagine listening as a psychotherapist or a counselor or a psychiatrist and, and like wanting to reach through their phone um, and go back in time. And I, I would imagine it was so maddening as a trained professional because there were so many people that could have gotten her the help that she needed much, much sooner. Um, and I have no desires to diagnose her at, at all, but certainly there was some depression and probably some anxiety and, and OCD. Um, but with mental health, and this is my question to you, but with mental health and spirituality, there's a conceptual overlap there. Yes. And I think that happens a lot. There's, there's, there's definitely like by, directional influence. They bi-directionally influence each other, right? And so mm-hmm. Bible and prayer over medication and psychotherapy is not always the best treatment. And so this is a boundary issue to me. Um, there were boundaries that that were crossed. And so when we have dividing lines, when we have no trespassing mm-hmm. signs, there are many reasons that that we might cross them. It might be an overestimation of our own abilities and arrogance, an underestimation of someone else's abilities. Again, I suppose that's arrogance. Um, it might be a desire for control. It might be an anxiety. There are probably lots of reasons that, w- that we cross boundaries when we shouldn't. Um, but w- what's your take on that conceptual overlap? And, and where are the boundaries? Yeah, I mean, I think this one's really tricky, right? For anyone who's ever worked in a helping profession, I mean, my mom was a nurse, right? Growing up, mm-hmm. um, uh, my sister is a school teacher. Like, I think a lot of a lot of folks would share how their role as a as a person with some sort of social power in in the lives of mm-hmm. other people in the sort of helping context um, and and service context is something that often does veer. It does cross into a, a gray area where, where it's it's not. I'm not just doing my job, you know, teaching my kids math, right? I'm I'm actually at some level on the front lines of their mental health as well, right? Um, Absolutely. And so I think that 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 line being fuzzy will will always be there. I think so so much of the. So much of the tragedy again of 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 learning about what happened to Alana is that, like as you mentioned, these lines were continuously crossed to in in very egregious ways, where mm-hmm. um where actually a, a wall was built between Alana and her parents, um and and we see this almost happening like a slow car like a slow train wreck right in slow motion, because it's like ideas around. Yes, just ideas that are planted over time in her theologically, socially, and in the context of spiritual direction. And so I guess my my thought would be that folks, you know, in general are pretty aware of this often, but 
I, as I often say, like it's all kind of it's all kind of fun and games until someone gets hurt, right? And and I think that we have in this case someone getting really really hurt fatally, and and I think it's a wake up call for all of us to to be a lot more vigilant about to educate ourselves. A lot of a lot of these my friends who are priests, a lot of them are not trained in these areas, and yet they are their their parishioners their their flock is being taught to open up about some of the most deep yes. vulnerable parts of their lives in the context of spiritual direction in the context of confession and what do you do with that and i think this is like you said one of those areas where science and overall our understanding of psychology and how people work is is something that is can be very helpful in informing how we should be pastorally um and but 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 yes i think the lines are blurry i don't have really clear answers here other than to point to examples where we have failed people mm-hmm. oh simon you are just a, a deep well of um wisdom and kindness and generosity and i'm i'm so so grateful can you please tell us how to support you where to find you what you might have coming up next um what you would like from us, where, how can we support you in this very brave endeavor? Um, well, I would encourage everyone to check out the podcast, Dear Alana, by going to dearalana.com. My you birthday also- is September 9th, and that's what I'm asking for my birthday. I want everyone <laughs> to go listen to all eight episodes of Dear Alana. Oh my God. Amazing. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much for that. I, yeah. So that would be, um, that would be the first thing. So yeah, I would encourage folks to go to dearalana.com. I would also, you can also search for Dear Alana on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, please follow us on socials, rate and review the show. And as also mentioned, if share if if you happen to like the podcast, or even if you don't, um, I hope it can be a conversation starter in your families and communities. So please share it with those important to you, and um, give it a listen. Yeah. Thank you, Simon, for your very important work. You tell this story in a bold yet gentle way. You are searching, but you're grounded. You are reverent, but you're also demanding. And I am so grateful that you spoke to me the way that you did. Um, I appreciate your candor, and I pray that you never, ever, ever quit creating. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so, so much. Hello, Beef. Hi, Beefinator. How's it going? Oh, Beefy, I adore Simon. I know. I know you would. He is so special. Um, Okay, so after I listened to your conversation with him, I told you that I thought he was aggressively gentle. Um, And we laughed about the oxymoron of that, but he really is. He's aggressively (laughs) gentle. Yeah. Um, Just such a kind soul and good communicator, thoughtful, mm-hmm. wise, open, like yeah. everything that we love. You know, I, this doesn't always happen, but I appreciated his art so much mm-hmm. that it almost, it can sometimes become a little intimidating because you want to like them. So it's like, mm-hmm. I love what you made. Am I going to like you? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you hear all the time, like, don't meet your heroes. And he was so congruous. It was like what he made yeah. was so consistent with who he is. It was so awesome. It was a, a relief. Yeah. He shared so much of himself and told so much of his mm-hmm. own story. Yeah. 
Um, okay, but I did have a question. Do you think do you think it's just me or did you sense um like a sense of hesitation? Like not not in a storytelling of Dear Alana, but like in y'all's conversation. Like, uh, well, I mean, I might not be the right word, but like maybe like yeah. nervousness or something. Hmm. Maybe it may what if that's what gentle is? Is that possible that like, you know, a part of gentleness is just being, because he's certainly careful. I think he's very, Mm -hmm. very careful. And I, you know, here, here he is setting out to tell someone's story because it felt very important to him. And then in doing so, he starts telling his own story. Um, And then me as a listener, like I'm listening and I agree that the whole thing's important. So I'm trying to shine a light on Mm -hmm. someone else telling someone else's story. And I think all of us, you know, uh, Alana, Simon, me, you have an awareness. So I don't know that it's like hesitation or nervousness as much as it is awareness of Mm -hmm. how tied to this topic, like some church people can be with angst or or nervousness or fear or things that aren't necessarily great. I think that it's not uncommon for some church people to have some knee-jerk reactions when it comes to loving people who are different than us. Yeah. I mean, certain church people certainly want to argue about what's actually loving. I mean, that's for sure. Like, you know, truth and love. Right. So you start getting nitpicky. Here's what I've noticed. I think that you start getting nitpicky about exactly what love is when you don't want to give it. Right. 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 Well, you've seen that already, right? Like you barely posted anything on this. Um, and already seen that. Like when you were just telling people to listen to the podcast, Dear Alana. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe you don't want to get into that, but no, that's okay. I'm just, <laughs> I'm reminded of like that metaphor that talks something about elephants running off. You know, there's, it's like a metaphor about a tiny yeah. rider on a giant elephant. So the tiny rider represents your conscious thoughts and the elephant is your subconscious. Yeah. So the rider is like intellect and reasoning and the elephant is emotion and attachment. And the rider, our intellect and reason is like doing its best to steer yeah. But the truth is the elephant, our emotions are strong, stronger, and can just like take off without permission. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like there's so many people who just hear the words LGBTQ plus and like their elephants have taken off and they can't even, yeah. you know, begin to apply their intellect and reasoning. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, it seems to me that what Simon's saying isn't, doesn't seem that controversial at all. This is definitely, I think that's a perfect time to implored that metaphor because that's exactly what's happening. I think that people's elephants have have taken off. I mean, so I don't mind talking about it at all. I posted a story. I said, hey, listen to this podcast. I think it's an important topic that's covered very beautifully and artfully and carefully. And then I posted a quote from Henry Nowen that says, self-hatred is um, such an assault to the spiritual life because it goes directly against our lone identity as beloved. I think that's mm-hmm. such a beautiful quote, by the mm-hmm. way. And so um, all I all I did was post that and bam, here's the DM saying, um, I'm concerned that you're endorsing something um, against church teaching and I am concerned that you don't have permission to be endorsing this. And you said, excuse me, but loving yourself does not go against the church teaching, right? (laughs) Almost verbatim, beef, yes. (laughs) Um, But I feel like 
So, okay. So let's get into that. I feel like Dear Alana was so simple mm-hmm. in its message of, I need to learn how to love me as I am because trying to change me is killing me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beef, you're dying to get on your pro-life soapbox right now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah. But then it, the the message was was also so so simple in that way, but then complex in another way where it's like, we have to do better right. with the the messages that we're sending, um, the tones that we're taking. Um, we have to do better around kindness towards people that are different than us. And it and any message that is um, complicit in in hurting someone else, we just need to be careful around mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the word disordered, right? Like, I thought a lot about that. That's the language that the church has settled on. And it has implications because if something's disordered, shouldn't it be ordered? Right. So it implies, right. you know, people need to change or, yeah. you know, even other things that I've even said, hate the sin, love the sinner or truth and love. You know, when those types of things are said with overconfidence and, you know, or they're said with certainty or arrogance, assumption, or if they're said while removing yourself from anything similar, it just conveys yeah. a lack of humility around someone else's experience. Yes, someone else's experience. See, that's just it for me because I feel like we have got to quit being the Holy Spirit for each other. Like mm. period, the end for me, because the truth is that, and and I don't know, this might be uncomfortable or, or something, but I, I feel mm. like what you are essentially doing is you are asking specifics about someone's sex life, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, no one would ever ask me about my sex life. Um, right. No one would make demands of me based on my sex life. No one would check in with me to make sure I'm doing that. You know, or are you, you know, practicing NFP or saying that they're concerned for me about anything that might be happening in my bedroom? And so I think that, that those same people would trust me Right. To take that up with the Lord, that that would be between me and the Holy Spirit and good for them. Good for them in that because you, what you are doing is you're leaving my things up to me and the Lord and you are treating me with dignity when you trust me and the Holy Spirit to do this work together. Um, whatever that may be. And so I, I think that when we are demanding details of someone else's sex life, there is a lack of dignity involved in that line of questioning. Mm-hmm. It's good. I like what you said. We have to quit being the Holy Spirit for one another. It's good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it, it's very common. And I know that I can be like this in other topics. So I want to include myself in this message. But I think that church people that we can be passionate. And I think that that's a good thing. Um I think that it is possible that when we are really passionate, that it can be conveyed, that passion can be conveyed um, rudely. Um, it can be conveyed with overconfidence or too much certainty. I liked those words you mm-hmm. said a second ago. Um, but when we, when we do that invasively, mm-hmm. it is incongruent. When we do that rudely, um, it is incongruent with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, it is incongruent with the fruit of the Spirit. It is incongruent with the way of Jesus mm-hmm. um, in general. Yeah. I think like that zeal you're talking about, I think it's often like 
like defensive in origin, right? It's like people protecting the church. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, the thing is, Jesus never asked us for that. He, he doesn't need our protecting. He's victorious. He just asked us mm. to follow him. Mm. And he asked us to follow him. And where did he go? He went to, to the hurting people. To the hurting people. Yes. <laughs> to the hurting people. Uh, I love you, Beef. Thanks for um, getting in this with me. And thank you for loving Simon and loving Alana and loving the church. I'm love glad to be here with you. It would be really hard to do all this without a Beefy. So thank you. Right back at you. Love you. Love you. That's it for season 10, Sinners, Saints, and Sisters. We will be back with more great guests and more hope-giving conversations in season 11. We already have many exciting things in the works. Until then, I hope that you can keep in touch on Instagram or TikTok or Threads or Forte Catholic, where I occasionally co-host. Please be sure to hit subscribe so that you don't miss a thing. Thanks a lot. Today's show was a production of Allison Sullivan in conjunction with the Forte Catholic Podcast Network. For more great Catholic podcasts, head on over to ForteCatholic.com slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.